Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Life in Red podcast, lifeinredpodcast.com, Life in Red podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and Life in Red pod on Twitter. My guest today, another one of uh, my pandemic Twitter for friends, uh, Twitter's been Twitter's been so great over this pandemic and really for the last number of years, at least for me, connecting with people and, and forming friendships all across the world. It's been really, really, really cool. And uh, this is a person who we, we connected after being featured in an article from past guest uh, Paul, tall Paul, who does, who runs never alone. Uh, and, uh, we've been following each other and I've wanted to have her on for a while and, uh, she's great. We talked about, um, her diagnosis, finding help, how she's able to help people now with mental health and mental illness. Uh, and, uh, she has a lot of great stuff on her Twitter and I, I highly recommend you go and check her out. She is a pharmacist, which we didn't really talk about. We kind of referenced it, but, but that's pretty cool. She's the co-founder of We Matter To Inc. She's also a TEDx speaker, which we talk about, and uh, that's a really hard thing to do. So really cool to talk to her. Go check her out uh, because I matter on Twitter. Uh, please give up for my guest, Dr. Ashley Perkins. Take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Another Twitter friend making it to the real life and chatting on the podcast. Ashley, Doctor Ashley Perkins, getting fancy up in here. That's right. Welcome. Thank yes. you for joining me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We've connected. Well. I think the first time we connected is when we were both featured in an article with uh, our friend uh, Paul from um, Never Alone, who's also been on the show earlier, if you want to go check that episode out. Uh, but the, the best thing about Twitter in a case is like the community of mental health advocates. It like truly is amazing because I live in Canada, I live in Ottawa, you live in Florida, and yet we can interact and follow each other's ideas. And it, it's so special, even though that app can be a dumpster fire. Yes, I agree. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, I laugh because the drama on Twitter sometimes is unique. And if you were to try to explain like being dad to somebody who's not on Twitter, they would be like, huh? But if you're on Twitter, we all know what this means. <laughs> um, but the mental health community is, is amazing. Um, when I started on Twitter uh, back in June of last year, so almost a year now. Oh, oh that's it. Oh, wow. Uh, I know. I know. I'd never been on Twitter. I w I, I'm not very good at the whole social media thing. <laughs> um, but I, I decided if I really wanted to branch out and get my story and my voice out there, I needed to get onto a platform where I don't know people to grow uh, that following. And I didn't expect what has happened. However, I have been so amazed by the advocates that are using Twitter in the same way that I am using it. Um, other advocates for all different types of causes. Um, we kind of band together as a group, you know, when we need to highlight a certain, you know, area more than the other. 
And I've just been completely shocked because I did not expect it when I started this. And I've been pleasantly surprised. And I love it because it's like a family. Mm-hmm. It's like a family of people who are there for each other when we need it and lifting each other up. And it's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. My, my favorite thing is like the support to like retweeting me or sharing my podcast or like the people I've never met like yourself, like, you know, Becca, there's a bunch of people I could name that support me more than like some people in like real life who I know and Mm -hmm. my friends. Like, I'm just like, wow. Like, it's really cool. I like, it it doesn't really make sense to me, but I'm like, this is really cool. Yes. My husband kind of looks at me. I'm like, oh, I was talking to so-and-so on Twitter. And my, my husband's like, huh? do you know this person? I'm like, well, of course I know this person because I've spoken to them on Twitter, Mm -hmm. but I don't know, know them because I've never like met them in person. It's kind of hard to describe to people who've not had the experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we get into your story and you wear like many different hats in your life, uh, and I want to hear all about that, but like I said, you live in Florida. I live in Ottawa and uh, they've been polar opposites, I think, in terms of how we've handled this pandemic and I guess certain ways we we view life in general, I suppose, when it comes to government and, and all that. So, I mean, how, how, how have you been? You, you said you started Twitter last June, which is you're just a, a baby in terms of Twitter, but you yeah. know, you've seen exponential growth, but you know, there's all sorts of different challenges. So how have you been doing through the, this pandemic? So I'm high risk. Mm. Um, I have asthma, but on top of that, uh, in college, I got mono and this, and mono completely wiped my immune system out. So working in a pharmacy has been unique as a pharmacist because a patient will come in sick. I look at them and the next day I'm sick. Um, so for me, it's been a challenge because I, can't go out in the public because I don't want to get sick. Now I'm fully vaccinated now. So I feel a lot more comfortable. Uh, I'm still wearing a mask and everything, but I do, you know, it's been a challenge, but part of that too, is I have agoraphobia. So like I've been socially distancing way longer than people knew what that meant. Um, And for me, I've been all comfy cozy because I honestly don't need to go anywhere. So for me, I'm fine. Like, I feel like I've been training for this my whole life. And I'm like now trying to help my extroverted friends who are like, I need people. And I'm like, it's okay. Uh, You know, I love you. I'll FaceTime with you if you need to FaceTime that way you can see me Um, and, and helping them get through this because they know for me, this is just any other day. Then we moved in the midst of a pandemic. Um, So we moved from West Virginia to Florida um, and the rules and the different ways that the two states have dealt with this is radically different. Um, West Virginia has done a wonderful job at, you know, vaccinating. They were one of the top states in the U.S., vaccination rates and everything and getting people vaccinated. And then there's Florida where the rules have been kind of like a generalized, you should follow this, but like, we're not going to make you follow this. Um, they, they, they get into the news a lot with their governor. Um, my governor, I, 
I still don't even like accept this as my state. <laughs> uh, I'm still like on the, on the line of, do I want to say I live here? Um, because I have not been, I've been, let's just say, not happy with how Florida has handled the pandemic, um, if I'm going to be judicial mm. about it. Um, because it's, for people like me who are high risk, once we moved here, I literally went nowhere because I don't trust people here in this state because I don't feel like they're following the rules because they haven't been made to follow the rules. I was in Target yesterday and I was one of a handful of people still wearing a mask. Most people are not wearing masks and it's horrifying in my opinion. Yeah, I was listening to uh, an episode of The Daily, uh, the New York Times, and they were talking about how, um, you know, not wearing masks and, and some of the rules in, in the states or lack of rules, I guess I could say, it's going to lead to not having herd immunity or take a very long time to reach that, which is going to compromise people who are at risk or who can't get vaccinated, people with cancer, older people. Like, so it was like kind of like eye opening. I'm like, oh, this is why it's important. Um, to get vaccinated mm -hmm. but I mean that's a whole that could be a whole podcast about oh goodness yes. about that um so I'm curious I, I want to hear some of your story and I'll let you tell it the way you want to tell it but before we get to that just one point you did mention uh agoraphobia and just mm -hmm. for people who are not clear because I don't think um unless you have it a lot of people are educated on the subject oh, yeah. what exactly is that and would that classify as uh like a mental illness or a mental health issue so I didn't know what it was until I was diagnosed with it too. Uh, they don't teach specific phobias in pharmacy schools. So like it's part of like the anxiety mm. group um, and phobias uh, specifically. So we learned about phobias, but we didn't learn about specific ones. So agoraphobia, what I usually do is as much as I don't like labels and stereotypes, unfortunately stereotypes are the best way to describe agoraphobia. So if you're watching a show or a movie and you see somebody who doesn't come out of their house, um, they're usually called a shut-in. Um, they don't come out. They don't go places. They just stay in their house. They'll get stuff delivered to them. That's agoraphobia. Mm -hmm. People who do not like to go out to public places, they're scared of public spaces, open spaces, spaces with people, um, and they avoid them. That's agoraphobia. So you of course have a whole spectrum of people with agoraphobia. So you have the people who don't come out of their homes and they stay home because it's safe. And then you have people who have just slight cases of it or they've learned how to cope with it. Um, and I used to be the one who could cope with it fairly well. Unfortunately, the pandemic has reversed a lot of this. Um, I have gone backwards to the point that yesterday I was at Target where it wasn't very busy but I could feel my anxiety because I was out in public and I took the opportunity because it was a morning time in a super target, which is very large space. Um, not a lot of people, but I took that opportunity to like be very uncomfortable so that I can start becoming more comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and it's just going to be a process again. I'm going to have to work through doing it in order to be more comfortable with it. Um, but that's what agoraphobia is. And most times that's the one of my diagnoses that they look at me and they're like, huh? And I'm like, I know, me too. I did the same thing uh, when I was diagnosed with it. Um, and it's just the fear of open spaces is the technical definition of agoraphobia. Mm, okay. I'm uh, One of my good friends growing up, his, his mom 
I mean, I didn't know that was a diagnosis, but this is clearly what they had. Um, and what a highly stigmatized, I guess, phobia or, or very misunderstood because you probably often get judged and people, I mean, probably say mean things, uh, to be honest with you, because, because of that. Um, but so I guess I'll let you just take it from the beginning and I'll, I'll follow up and interject where I need to, but you know, when did your mental health story start and then, you know, where are we at now? Well, it started the day I was born. <laughs> um, I have ADHD and I mean, I've had that my whole life. Um, you know, I was the student who never sat still, who always got the, she's wonderful, you know, she's super smart, but she doesn't shut up. And, you know, in a nutshell, that's what I've been dealing with my whole life. Um, my parents did have an experience where they were called to the principal's office with my teacher and they did have the conversation about medicating me. And my parents were like, no, you know, her doctor doesn't feel like she needs that. You know, we're going to continue to do it the way we've been doing it. And if we can deal with her at home, you can deal with her at school. And I'm very proud of my parents for doing that. I look back and I said, maybe it could have made some situations easier for me. Um, but again, mental health has changed so much over that amount of time. I was, you know, I was in elementary school in the early nineties. So back then ADHD was still extremely stigmatized to the point that like, you know, you were put in special classrooms and told you couldn't do things. Um, so my parents didn't want that for me. So as much as I hate to say it that way, they chose to allow me to work through it and learn through it, which again is another positive because I've learned how to overcome it. Um, and then, you know, I went to college and, you know, I was very sheltered. <laughs> so I went, you know, buck wild mm. and I started with an alcohol issue. Um, I've dealt with alcoholism for, you know, quite some time and I'm sober now. Uh, I'm up, I'm up or up, uh, up 800 days mm. towards 900. I'm getting closer. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, so, you know, the drinking, but that's not uncommon in the healthcare professional mm. education area. Um, it's very stressful. It's not easy to get through these programs. And sometimes alcohol becomes that crutch of, you know, when we're we have downtime, we're going to drink, we're going to have a lot of fun and we're not going to think or worry about everything else. So it was more common to just drink a lot with my friends when we were done studying for a test or whatever. And I didn't see it as a problem. Um, I just saw it as normal social behavior and yes, we got out of control. And yes, we did some things that we probably should never talk about. But at the same time, because we were all doing it, it's not something that you really notice. And then I had to have back surgery. <laughs> not many people, I was 20 when I had my mm. back surgery. And before that, I was dealing with a lot of pain. Chronic pain leads to depression. And I'm not the type of person who has major depressive disorder, I have depression and it has always been tied to a negative situation. Um, so mine is very situational. So 
chronic ill, you know, chronic pain. Parents took me to a doctor during my summer time before I started pharmacy school. So it was during my, um, right after I had finished my prereqs and I was about to finish and start into like the pharmacy program um, full time. And I, they test after test after test, we couldn't figure out what was wrong. And, and you start to wonder if you're making it up. Um, but all I knew is, is I hurt. So I'm dealing with pain. I'm drinking too much to deal with the pain. I'm in a really bad place. And my parents were doing the best they could. And I went in for exploratory surgery on my back on August 4th, 2004, three weeks before I started pharmacy school. And I told my doctor that I don't want to wait a year to start pharmacy school. So you have three weeks to get me ready to go. And I'm going back to school. Um, And that's what we did. And it worked. Uh, He took off, you know, part of my spinous process, which was compacted to the lower part. And that's why I had pain. But when you lay down flat, it pulls it apart. So it looks normal. But when you're walking around, it's pushing Mm. itself together. So that's what was causing my pain. And then a couple years later, I lost my grandfather to medical malpractice. So, you know, you just start to get better. And then it's like the next foot drops and something else happens. And that unfortunately has been a lot of my story is that I go from one thing to the next and I learn something from it, but then inevitably something else happens. So my grandfather passed away from medical malpractice. I was in, it was 2005. So it was about a year and a half later. I'm dealing with the loss of my grandfather and I'm the type of person who avoids and ignores. So I put it in a box and I put it away. (laughs) And I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to talk about it. Um, I wasn't in therapy. I wasn't getting help. I didn't know I had problems at this point. I was just kind of like navigating life, you know, free forming it and not doing a very good job because I didn't know I had a problem. Mm. And when I graduated from college, my husband's, um, my husband, my now husband, but we were dating at the time. So it was just his sister at the time, but she's my sister-in-law finally pulled me aside and looked at me and goes, Ashley, do you know that some of your behavior is actually not normal? Oh, I looked at her and go, what do you mean not normal? <laughs> I'm like, it's normal to me. And she's like, you know, avoiding the grocery store and going grocery shopping at 10 p.m. so that you can avoid people is not normal. I'm like, all people don't avoid people. And she's like, no. She's like, the fact that you will drive into a parking lot see a lot of cars and turn around and leave without going into the store. That's not normal. And I'm like, Oh, okay. She's like, have you thought about talking to a doctor? And I'm like, no, but maybe I should. (laughs) And hence when I went and first got diagnosed. So in 2008, I went to a doctor for the first time, told him all of my weird quirks. And that's when I was diagnosed with agoraphobia officially diagnosed with ADHD because it had never been like officially put into my medical documents 
um, even though we knew I had it. Um, so he officially diagnosed me with that. And I also have generalized anxiety disorder. So I get anxiety from everything. <laughs> I, I'm a doom thinker. I will literally think about every possible thing that could go wrong. <laughs> and I bash it. Like I bash it, the dead horse. And then I bash the dead horse some more to make sure. Um, and I've, you know, and it's, it's funny to learn about these things because you're like, oh, that's why I do what that, that is. And mm -hmm. like, when I started to read about agoraphobia, I'm like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. Like avoids public transportation. I hate public transportation. It all makes sense now. Because that is something that people with agoraphobia will avoid. And, you know, this is why I share because a lot of times people will hear some of these things and they're like, that's me. That's me. And does it always lead to a diagnosis? No. Thing to watch because if you're checking more of the boxes and you're more like me, then, you know, then maybe there is an actual issue that you should talk to somebody about. But then you get through that whole stigma thing and people are afraid to talk to people because they're not sure what somebody's going to say. So then I go through time and I'm doing fine. I'm still drinking way too much, but I'm now being treated for this, these problems. And it, it is important to add, I've never officially been diagnosed with a substance abuse disorder because I know what to say. <laughs> As a medical professional, we know what to say. And if we want to fly under the radar, we know exactly what to say to fly under the radar. So I've never been diagnosed because I never, I knew I had troubling behavior, but I wasn't going to admit this. Because um, again, talking about my mental health issues isn't something that medical professionals normally do. Because again, we have been told, not directly, but we've been told that this could cause us problems in the future and we want to make sure we hide it because we don't want anyone to have anything that could cause our career an issue. And again, you've never directly been told this, but it, it but it's, it's there. So, you know, okay, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this because someone's going to say I can't be a pharmacist or I can't be a, an effective pharmacist because I have X, Y, and Z. So, you know, we keep it to ourselves. I told my therapist, but I kept it to myself for the most part. And then 2016 happened. I had my son um, and I had postpartum depression, except I ignored postpartum depression because that's what I do. I avoid and ignore everything until it's too late. And the day that I thought about driving my vehicle into a um, overpasses have those like really big posts that hold them up and they're real sturdy. And I thought to myself, if I run my car into that, that pole is big enough and sturdy enough. It's not going to move. So if I hit it at a certain, and that's when I like, it clicked, something is wrong here. And I was on my way to work and I parked my car, didn't think about the ramifications this could have on my career. <laughs> I walked straight up to the store manager's office and he had like a glass door and I'm literally in the glass door, like bawling. And he's like, on the phone, he goes, I got to call you back. I need to take care of something. And he goes, what is wrong with you? 
And I'm like, and I told, I just verbally vomited all of it there. I didn't even think about it. And he looked at me and he goes, call your husband. I'm taking you to the hospital. I said, excuse me, we're going where? And he's like, I'm taking you to the hospital. And I'm like, and of course now I'm thinking to myself, I got to make a bunch of excuses, but I have to work. He looks at me and he goes, I don't care about that pharmacy right now. The only person I care about is you. Call your husband. Oh, he's got bosses in town. I can't call Ashley. He cares more about you than those dumb bosses that are in town. Call him and tell him to meet you at the hospital. Long story short, I ended up being admitted. I was in the hospital for five days. And it's the first time in my life I have taken care of myself and not worried about anybody else. I became a pharmacist to help people. I will help people to my detriment. I will always put myself second to help somebody else. And for the first time in my life, I learned, I had to learn how to take care of myself. And that is when I made the realization, I have to start taking care of myself so I can take care of other people. And this is when I started sharing with my patients because it was shortly after I came back to work after being in the hospital and I had a patient come in and it was a new prescription for an antidepressant. And she said, I'm really nervous about starting this. And I said, why? And she said, because of what people will think about me. I said, what people will think about you? What do you mean? People will think, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I said, well, first of all, you don't have to tell them. They're not going to know. And she's like, well, I have to take this medicine though now. And I'm like, again, they're not going to know. I was like, and you know, I take something like this, right? And she looked at me, she goes, what? I was like, yeah, I was like, I just got out of the hospital. And she looked at me, she goes, is that where you were? And I was like, yeah, I was in the hospital. I was like, and I told her what happened. And she goes, not you. And I'm like, that's me. I was like, why would you think not me? But you're so successful. You're a pharmacist. You have all these things. And, I, and that's when the light bulb in my head went off. And I'm like, oh. And a couple months later, she came in and she thanked me. And she said, if you hadn't shared that, I don't know if I would be so okay with taking my medicine and going to therapy. And that's when I started sharing with my patients. Because when I share that little piece about me, even if it's not a lot, it just knows they have a safe place to come. I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to make them feel shame because they already feel it. I'm going to give them a place to come to talk to me. And we can, and they can get through this and they know I'm there to help them through it. And I've, and that's how I've just, I've gotten so much better at sharing. It's gotten bigger. I just recently did a TEDx and, mm -hmm. you know, shared my story to the world. And it's one of those things that it just humanizes me. Like, yeah, I'm a medical professional and yes, I'm a pharmacist. And so when you come into the pharmacy and you see me in my white coat, it, it puts me up here and I'm not, I, that's all just a title. I'm down here because I'm still dealing with how do I get, you know, how do I get over my anxiety each day? How do I get over my agoraphobia so I can go out and go to work? How do I, you know, function with the ADHD and forgetting things and, you know, half the time not knowing what I'm doing because, you know, I forgot what I was doing. Um, you know, having a child who, you know, I want to make sure that I'm watching so that if he has, because he, 
he has ADHD. I've, I've got news for him. Um, but you know, how can I help him in the same way my parents helped me, but also making sure that I'm aware if he needs medication and not worrying about that medication stigma that people deal with. And, you know, it's just, I'm no different. Medical professionals, we have this too. It does not pick and choose the person it's going to deal, it's going to affect. And the, the time has come for us to start sharing because our patients need to know we get it. We're not, I don't know if we do anybody any credit by not saying that we have them. It, it, it makes our patients so much more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've gone through discrimination. I, I've gone through this as well in 2019, unfortunately, in a volunteer situation. Somebody used my mental health against me. And I went through eight months of hell, which ended in another suicide attempt. And that's the day that this advocacy started. I got up off the floor and I said, never again. Never again will I let a group of people make me feel like this. And never again am I going to sit and be quiet. I'm going to make sure people know. You have mental health issues. You have mental diseases. Guess what? You can do anything you want if you choose to do so. If you get help and you're willing to work on all of these problems so that you can have a career, so you can have a family, so that you can, you know, rise up and do whatever it is you want, you can do it and have these issues. It it doesn't have to be separated. And I don't, when other people come to me and say, you know, I wouldn't have known what gaslighting was if you wouldn't have talked about it because I've gone through that because people don't know what gaslighting is. And then when I hear somebody say, well, my, my employer said X, Y, and Z. I'm like, they can't do that. That's discrimination. I was like, you need to tell them that. Well, what will happen? I was like, do you want to work in a place where they're going to discriminate against you? No. And if you can't leave yet, well, give buy yourself time so that you can, because People don't realize you cannot use somebody's mental health as the basis for questioning them. It's not okay. Like, mm. It's not okay. And, you know, if I have to yell and scream and tell people that it's wrong, I'm going to do it. And I'm all the time reminding people, you can't say that. You can't say that. And, you know, the time, I'm just tired of seeing it. And I went through it. And that is why I dedicated myself to doing this because nobody should do it. Nobody should go through it. And I know what it feels like. And I will be damned if I know somebody's going through it. I will make sure that I do everything I can to avoid the situation. So I've I've had a lot to overcome (laughs) in my life. And some people look at me and they go, how are you still functioning? I don't know. But I've never been, I've always been the underdog. I've always lived in the underdog place. And I thrive here. Like this is just me. And 
I'm going to continue to overcome and I'm going to continue to make mistakes because that's what we do as humans. And I'm going to continue to learn from them. But I'm also going to do everything I can to help people who have these diseases because they're not a personality trait. They are not a personality trait. All it does is describes the person you are. That's it. Mm. And that's the core of why I do this is because people have got to stop saying these pieces of them are the only pieces we should look at when this human being is so many more experiences than just these few things. Some extremely validating things, I think for a lot of people, because you've gone through kind of a a spectrum of, you know, issues I've covered on this podcast, whether it comes to uh, postpartum, um, and, and suicidal ideation, ADHD, and, and overcoming adversity, all those different things. One of the, the most resonating things that, that came about um, was how you've, you've humanized, in a way, yourself as a pharmacist, as someone who, because you're right, when we think of doctors, we think of therapists, we think of pharmacists, we do. We hold them into a higher regard mm-hmm. as a society and forget sometimes that there's a lot of human elements to them as well. And that's, you know, one thing I appreciate about you, one of uh, things I appreciate about some of the therapists I follow that, you know, they've, they've humanized the profession, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the sense that they're not perfect, the sense that they also struggle and the struggles of trying to help people all day while also working on themselves has been yeah. extremely eye-opening for me as of course the street cleaners go by. Um I want to talk about the advocacy. I want to talk about, you know, uh, we matter too, but I'm curious because I, I haven't had a lot of opportunity to have a discussion on mental health with someone from America. Yeah. I've talked to Mm. people in the UK. I've talked to people in the Netherlands, like New Zealand, like all these different things, but to talk about mental health in America, I am very curious about, especially when it comes to stigma and the conversation in Canada, we have a day called Bellet's talk day, which you could make a lot of arguments about the corporatism of it and all that stuff, but it really has opened the conversation when it comes to mental health. And we've, while there is still stigma, of course, especially in the workplace, it really has created a much more open environment when it comes to mental health and people sharing their stories. What's it like in America when it comes to the conversation on mental health? Uh, Is it more state by state? Because while Canada is divided, America is especially divided. And I don't know how Republicans especially view it and people from Southern states, you know, I have a lot of, um, know what the word is but you talk about stereotypes you know as a canadian there's a lot of stereotypes about america for sure so what's the conversation and the stigma like in in america right now so it's a very much a mixed bag and it very much depends on where you live Mm. (laughs) big shocker um you know where i was living in west virginia i hate to say backwards but it's very backwards um i felt like i was living under a rock sometimes because I was very different as somebody who is not from that area. Um, I've lived in a lot of different places. My husband works for the railroad. So unfortunately we've been moved a lot. Um, It's kind of like the service. Every time he gets a promotion, we get moved. So I've had the opportunity, which I find to be a positive to work with a lot of different types of people. I've had to learn 
how to, to talk to different types of people. So for me, I've seen so many different types. And when I went to West Virginia, I just feel like they all, they all feel like they're all the same and that everybody else outside of West Virginia is the same as them, which is very not true. Um, it's, the past president visited there frequently, if that tells you anything about the area. Um, you know, there are wonderful people who live there and I have friends that live there. But unfortunately, open minded is not something that I would call most of the people that live there. And it's very difficult for people. Um, the LGBTQ population there is not accepted very much. Um, mental health is something that we we pray about instead of talking about yeah you knew exactly what i meant <laughs> and you know we so there but then you go to some place like a big city like indianapolis which is where i went to college open-minded you know all different types of people all walks of life you know even at a private liberal arts school we had culture we were we were immersed in it in indianapolis where there's just so many different types of people and so it's very, very different based on where you're at. And some places are going to be very, very open to this conversation while others are going to look at you sideways and tell and be afraid that you're going to pull a gun on them. And that's the problem is that we need to get everybody to a place where even if you don't agree or want to be around somebody with a mental health issue or a mental disease, you're not, you're, you're keeping some type of an open mind that there's a spectrum. Like those people don't like the closed minded don't think there's a spectrum. They think you're zero or, you know, pulling out a gun or in a menstrual institution in a straitjacket. They don't think there's any in between. And that's the problem is that there's so much in between. And that's where I come in <laughs> because if I didn't tell you, Nobody would know because I'm high functioning. Mm -hmm. I look normal. And when I tell you I have there, it shocks like people. There are some people that still don't believe me. I swear because I, I function too well, which means nothing because I, I, I am a master of the mask um, because I've had to be. And it, it's just, it's disheartening to see those those areas because I know there are people with mental health issues. In the United States, one in five adults will deal with some form of a mental health challenge within a year. So people live there and they have to have that closed-minded thought and it worries me, it breaks my heart because I know those people need help too. And they can't get help because more times than not, that community is not open to it. So they're going to keep quiet. And so that kind of goes into why we started We Matter Too, because we wanted to have this non-judgmental community space, kind of like the community we've built on Twitter, this space that people can come to, to get help, to get resources, to get questions answered, to have a place to share stories that way people feel like they have this they have this community 
to come to no matter where they live. And there's a lot of like NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And we have AFSP, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They're very inclusive and they're big national organizations. So a lot of people know about them, but sometimes people want to just connect with another person, mm-hmm. somebody that they can relate to um, because you don't have to be a doctor to help somebody. Peer support is going to become huge because there are not enough therapists. There are not enough psychiatrists, people. And it costs a lot. <laughs> I know. And, and that's the thing is, is it's not accessible and we're going to need somebody. And if you do get into a therapist, you got to wait six months. Hmm. What do we do with those people? So if we have peer support in all different flavors for all different types of people, they have a space to come to where they feel supported until they can get there. And that's why we did this because we just want to give people a space and we're, we're just, we're just every other everyday people. That's all we are. We aren't, we're not treating, we're supporting. Mm. And I think that's huge in this community because so many times we feel invalidated, unheard, you know, pushed off to the side and told, you know, we don't care but we care about you. And that's why we named it We Matter Too. It's because we do, we matter. And our, our lives, our stories, we, we, do, we do matter. It's not all these labels and things that people, you know, don't. and that's the labels within the community are important because it's how we connect with each other through our experiences, but they're not important to the outside. And that's what we really wanted to focus on. Yeah, one of the biggest things I've, I've taken, especially over the last year and a bit uh, in the pandemic is, is peer support, the idea of peer support and how there's different kinds, because one of the biggest things that, that came for me from my uh, friend Asante, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but he's a great follower, yes. but he, he brought up the, the conversation of race and mental health. And well, you know, someone like me, I can speak very much in general to, to mental health. I can speak to men's mental health in a lot of cases, but, you know, I'm not going to be the best support when it comes to things like race and mental health and racism or mm-hmm. for the LGBTQ plus community and, and, you know, the struggles that they deal with, right? Like, I'm not going to relate to that. So the right. idea of peer support of people who have really been through those experiences and understand the experiences a lot better than someone like myself or others can experience becomes so, so important um, because even therapists sometimes aren't equipped to deal with those types of issues, you know, it, it becomes yes. that much more important. So let's talk about we matter too. So you've, we've talked about it, but in general, like, what was the light bulb moment to do that? Because it's one thing to talk on a professional capacity. It's one thing to advocate on a personal capacity, but there's a big jump to creating an organization or a charity that's going to focus on these issues. So what was that light bulb moment? What was that motivating factor that was like, you know, I want to do this and take that one extra step. Absolutely. So it was actually, so well, So I got out of the pharmacy specifically in 2018 and I started teaching and I, there was a student 
one day who was, you could tell something was wrong. Like it was tears. It was, there was something wrong, but I wasn't going to ask them in front of the whole class what was wrong. I just made a mental note and I'll ask another time. And it just so happened the next day I'm walking out of the building and this person's walking in and I took the opportunity. I was like, Hey, I just wanted to make sure you're okay. I noticed you were really upset the other day. And the look of fear (laughs) all over this person's face. And you could tell they were like, Oh God, she noticed, she noticed something's wrong. Like, what can I say? What do I do? And it was that freak out I knew in that moment I need to share a piece of me to bring that down so they don't think they don't see me as professor they see me as human so I shared a bit about me I just said you know I have x y and z I deal with these problems I understand I get it you know sometimes the struggle is real and I just wanted to make sure you're okay because I wouldn't be okay with myself if I didn't at least check in And that's all it took. I wiped that fear of judgment and shame and guilt and everything that this person was feeling. I washed it all away. And we spent the next 30 minutes just talking and them sharing what was going on in their life, what they were dealing with, what they were struggling with. And we just had a moment where, and this person graduated a couple weeks ago, brand new pharmacist, yes. Um, it was a struggle, but of course they tell me all the time, like they couldn't have done it without me. I'm like, Oh, you could have, I just made it a little bit more manageable because you did all the hard work. Um, I was just your cheerleader and, you know, and I'm very proud of them because they did have to overcome a lot to get there. Um, but they got there and they're a doctor and I'm very proud of them. But that was the moment because I realized People are so fearful of what that person is going to say, what that person is going to do. Many times the social distancing happens because, you know, once they share, now that person doesn't want to be around them or they're going to be like, I don't want to listen because I just don't care or whatever whole host of reactions you've gotten from somebody after opening up, everybody fears. And if I already tell you, Hey, I got X, Y, and Z and you know, I get it. I'm safe. So many. And I, and and once the students learned (laughs) that I wasn't going to judge them, my door was a revolving door. I had students in and out of my office all the time. They knew they could come in and talk to me. They could cry. They could, you know, they could yell, scream, cuss. I didn't care. I wasn't going to judge them. I was going to let them get their feelings out. I was going to validate how they felt. And then we were going to work together to get a good plan together to get through it. And I'd be there for them every step of the way. And, you know, I'm not there teaching there anymore, but they all know I'm still here for them. So they're reaching out constantly. I talk to a lot of them still. And I didn't do anything special except listen and validate and help and support. And that's why I was like, why don't we do this for more people? And you don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a degree. You can be any person who has these experiences that can just share a story to help somebody else. 
And Brene Brown's like one of my favorites. I, you know, if I ever get to meet her one day. Oh, but I love the fact that she, she is just real. And she talks about how just your story can be another tool in somebody else's toolbox or their survival guide just by sharing. She talks about all these things. And that's all we're doing is by sharing our stories it can be completely different experiences, but there might be something I say that you connect with that you're like, oh, maybe I'll try that next time. Or, oh, maybe I should reach out and ask about, you know, whatever. We're just giving people that opportunity. So we're starting small. It's just a blog right now. We're sharing. Um, I've shared some pieces of me. Our other board members are going to be sharing their experiences um, on the blog. Um, we're going to, we're working on resources. So we want to get some resources out there, some broad ones. Um, and then we can get more specific because a lot of times finding resources is like playing pinball. It's like, which one can I hit? That's going to be right. So we want to try to get everything in one place to help people out down the road. We're hoping to have volunteers that will train and then are just going to be active listeners to support, to share stories, um, we have grand plans, but you got to start mm-hmm. and we're, we're going to grow, um, into that. But, you know, we really are just all people who either have the experience firsthand or they're a caregiver to somebody or a friend. We all have experience with some type of story. And that's all we're doing is we're just providing people a space. Mm-hmm couple of things there that I definitely want to touch on. Um, first, you know, you brought up such a good point that, you know, my toolbox is everybody's toolbox. And that's something I always tell people that like, if I'm giving a speech or a talk, I'm like, look, you don't have to try all these things and it's going to work for you. Some might work, some might not work. Some might only work for a time. The point is that you're, you're using all these things and like, you're just, you're just trying to create the best kind of plan for yourself that's going to work for you. Second, um, and I just want to give you kudos and a shout out because you as a professor, especially during that time in somebody's life, like that is where, that's where I first really started struggling with my mental illness and it really started to manifest. It's a very challenging time in everybody's life Mm -hmm. in general. You know, we're now in school, supposed to be adults. Now we're facing you know, money issue. Like there's just so many things. Yeah. So for you to offer that support, especially at that time for somebody who knows how many lives you could have saved, how many lives you definitely have impacted. You know, I just think if there's more intervention, especially during that time, people's lives with, with people mm-hmm. who they look up to that they can confide in, you know, we mm-hmm. could really set people out for a much better outcome when it comes to their mental health and their mental illnesses and the rest of their lives. So I just, I really wanted to touch on that point. Cause I think that's so, so critical and so important. Um, you know, you, you, you juggle a lot of hats, like I said, and, and you're doing all these things. How do you, like, how do you practice self-care? How do you make sure that you're taking care of yourself? So you're able to yeah. offer so much of yourself to other people. I used to be really bad at it, <laughs> obviously. Um, <laughs> I used to be horrible at it, actually. But no, I've had to learn because, again, I'll help to my detriment. My husband's the one who says that. He's like, Ashley, you literally will help somebody 
and like literally drag yourself down in order to do it. And he's not wrong. I mean, he's, he's completely correct. Um, but I love to knit. I knit, I, you know, most people look at me and they're like, is that something old ladies do? And I was like, dude, I've been doing this since I was in college. I, I needed something mindless enough that I could get my brain off of stuff but enough to keep my brain busy because again, I'll doom think. So I need something that's like a little bit of both and knitting is that like I can sit down and I can just sit there and knit. I'm paying attention because I'm following a pattern or whatever. And usually I'll be watching true crime because you know, that's my guilty pleasure. Um, my husband's like, do I need to be worried? I'm like, no, all these people get caught. Don't be worried. Uh, if I need to, you know, if I need to take good notes, I'll get on criminal minds or something. That's when you should be worried. Um, but, you know, and I can just do that and I can relax because again, I need a hobby where I can sit and relax, but I'm also busy. And that's another, it's another reason why it's great. And I have something to wear afterwards. So I coped hardcore through last year. I made seven sweaters. Yes. Um, I'm like, if that doesn't say coping, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, and that's how I, you know, I really just enjoy it. And I love being creative. Um, I know how to sew. My mom taught me when I was young. So I sew, um, I love making things just to be creative. Um, I make candles with really sassy names because that's just me because I'm super sassy and my child is super sassy and really it makes for all types of my comeuppances um, are coming back to haunt me. Um, so I make sassy candles and he loves scents. So he usually helps me. He'll smell the candles to make sure they smell good. And, you know, so I, I just love being creative and that's my self-care. And of course my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Creativity is, is such a big thing. And I think, I mean, I don't know the correlation between you know, mental health and mental illness and, and creativity because, you know, there's a, a saying that in order to be like a great artist or something like you have to be broken, you know what I mean? Like whether it's creating art visually or making music, uh, there, there just seems to be something about the creative process that definitely resonates with people who, who experience some of these things. So it's interesting because I'm, I'm very much the same way. Having a creative outlet for me is, is very therapeutic in a lot of ways, uh, whether it's poetry or, or anything like that. I want to talk about a little bit about the TED Talk because I don't talk about it often, but um, I am a part of Ottawa's TEDx Ottawa chapter. And so I know how hard it is, one, to get accepted as a TED speaker, and two, the work. People don't think that they think you just, oh, you just, you know, the day's planned and you walk right up and you're delivering the speech and everyone's like, oh, that's great. But like the, the, the coaching and everything. So, you know, was that something yeah. you ever aimed to do was give a TED talk um, and like share a little bit about the process and then how it went? Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned Brené Brown and honestly, her, her TED talk her first TED talk about vulnerability and then her second TED talk about shame are the two TED talks, the first two I've ever, I ever watched. Mm. Um, and they were back to, 
in 2013 when oh, I didn't mention this, but when I got my DUI um, in 2013, um, I was really struggling with that because again, I had adopted it as a personality trait, right? <laughs> but it's not. And um, somebody recommended her TED talks and they're like, I think this might actually be something that might help. And it did. It did. It, it, it reiterated the fact that I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person who made a mistake. And that's hard sometimes when you go through some of these challenges because you, you do, you take it on as a personality trait and you think you're an awful person. And it's really hard to flip that perspective. And she helped me do that. She really did. And that's the first time I had seen TED Talks. And of course, they're very common now. And, you know, and I always, I love speaking. Um, I've been public speaking for 20 plus years now. Um, the organization I mentioned, um, I'm used to talking in front of people. So I've been doing it for a long time. And I always, you know, you want to aspire to something when, when you're working on things like that. And I've always wanted to do one. So I was on, I'm a student, I'm a grad student at Marshall. I'm actually working on a degree in education um, with a focus in curriculum and instruction. I figured if I'm going to teach, I might as well learn how to do it properly. Mm. So I was on to get at the beginning of winter semester, I was getting in to get into Blackboard to download the syllabuses and they have like a banner thing that kind of scrolls by. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw TEDx and on it, it said, we're crowdsourcing a speaker. And this was the last day to submit a three minute pitch. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if I should do that. And we were getting close to the, with the We Matter 2. And I was like, this would actually be a really good, like, thing to do. So I was like, you know, okay. So I get on my computer and it takes me a, a you know, 20 takes to get a good video. Um, but I just did a three minute pitch and I turned it in and what do you know, <laughs> they chose me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like there was a lot of screaming. There was a lot of excitement. Uh, I had to explain what Ted was to my parents because they had no clue. Um, and I, was beyond honored and humbled. And then it so happens that my academic advisor was also a coach. <laughs> so I got my academic advisor as my coach. So I got a coach. And then I also got a student coach because TEDx has students at Marshall be part of the planning committee as kind of, kind of an internship. Um, what I understand is in fall semester, it's considered a course for them. So they get, you know, this experience of being on a planning committee. Mm. And so I had a student as well as a coach, which was great because for my story, it helps, it helped me not only be applicable for adults, but also for adults who are also in college and young, younger students. Um, and so we would meet like once a week. Um, I'd write something, they'd go through and edit it and it was getting worse. It was not like, I don't normally write speeches. I usually just fly by the seat of my pants. Um, I figure whatever I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'll own it when I'm finished and hopefully it goes well. Um, a lot of people write stuff down. I just have never been that person. So the more we wrote it, the more it started to sound like something I had written for class. And I was like, this is not going well. So finally, I was talking to my coach and I was like, you know, I have a group of pharmacy students I'm speaking to this week. How about I record it? And I see what I say. So I recorded it and everything in the speech was 
what I say, it was just in my own words where now we have added all these filler words that I don't need. Um, and I cleaned it up and I sent it to her and she goes, this is it. This is it. And I said, okie dokie. And then I got to use a teleprompter, which I've never done before. So all my friends are like, wow, you're really like, you're up there and you like have it memorized. I go, fun fact about that. I'm glad you say that because I totally had a teleprompter. <laughs> so it means I was good at not reading right from the teleprompter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and we had a, we had a, we had two dress rehearsals. So we went in the one night and it was just on stage to run through everybody's stuff with the teleprompter. And then the second one was like lights and everything and practice. And, and then the third time we got together, we, we did it. And it's a, it's an experience, but it was definitely an experience. I'm glad I had because I wouldn't have had something like that. Cause like I said, I usually just get up on stage and off I go. Um, but this was like a whole production and, you know, and it's stages and you need to be here and here and not here. And luckily I was a ballet dancer back in the day. So like <laughs> this stuff is not new to me. Um, you know, we had tech rehearsals and dress rehearsals. And so for me, I was just, you know, kind of living it up. Cause I'm like, Oh, I used to do this all the time. Um, but it's a, it is impressive. I have to say the way these things run and they, I, I gave them all kudos because it was an experience and I loved it. I, I loved the experience. I loved having it. And uh, now I can get my story out there in a very, you know, in a different way that I never would have experienced before. Yeah. It gives that credibility too. like when, when you see TEDx speaker, like that carries, carries weight. It really does. Yeah. So that's why like, just for you to go through the experience and, and share that, like it just being on the other side of like the committee and seeing how, like it even opened my eyes. I was like, Holy, like, yeah, like yeah. there's so much that goes into it with these people preparing for that speech. Um, so, you know, like, it, I think it's amazing. I think it's really cool. Uh, so, um, we could talk, I think, for probably like five or six hours, but uh, <laughs> I know, probably. I know, we're we're all busy, and your your Twitter, your Follow Fridays are probably going off the chain. I could feel my phone vibrating. <laughs> so, um, where, I mean, you're on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Instagram, but where do people find We Matter Two? Where do they find you on social media, and uh, how can they get in contact? Absolutely. So We Matter Two is We Matter Two um, that's our website. Um, and then it has links to all of our social medias. So we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook right now. Um, and they're all at we matter to INC. We kept them all the same. So Good branding. You, yeah, so you can go on any of them and it's we matter to INC and you'll get us. Um, and then for me, on Twitter, I'm at because I matter. Because, you know, uh, I don't know it. Uh, I'm sure I'll finish it, but I've written a book. I'm in oh. the editing phase. I'm in this editing phase that I'm adverse to and I'm like <laughs> avoiding like the plague. And um, luckily, my best friend is my editor. So, like, he does not push me because <laughs> he knows the more he pushes me, I'm not going to do it. I'll do it at some point. It's just I'm it is not my thing. That's why my best friend was an English major in college because that's not my thing. Mm. Um, so I wrote a book and that's where we matter too, because the title of the book will be I matter too. Um, because again, it's I matter 
not the labels, not the diseases, not whatever. It's me and my story. Um, because again, it, the importance of the story, helping other people is really why I do this. Um, and um, Ashley Perkins, Shogren, because my husband doesn't like to be called Mr. Perkins. So I hyphenate it in personal life so people don't call my husband Mr. Perkins because that's my father. Um, and so I'm pretty easy to find out there because everything's public because I don't hide anything um, as my phone dings. Um, I, I own what I say and no matter where I say it, it's what I say. So um, that's just me. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's been a joy to follow each other and interact on Twitter. It's been an absolute joy to have a face-to-face-ish conversation. Um, And uh, I don't know, once this pandemic's over, I want to come to Florida. Got to go see Disney World again. So uh, maybe I'll make a stop by. (laughs) Two hours away. Okay, perfect. There we go. Uh, But Ashley, thank you so much for your time, your energy, and uh, being open and vulnerable and and helping so many people. Um, You're doing incredible work. So thank you very much. Thank you. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.